Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, I think it's pretty safe to say that today um, all eyes in Georgia are really focused on Hurricane Ian and what may happen as it moves inland and crosses somewhere over the state of Georgia. So we're going to start the show by talking about that. And with their permission, um, I'm going to introduce uh, our, our two panelists, Amy Steigerwalt and Donna Lowry, separately in just a minute, uh, now more formally. But I do want to go right to Greg Bluestein, our uh, Wednesday partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, because, Greg, you've uh, literally just walked out of a news conference with Governor Kemp in which he talked about the emergency plan for Georgia, how they're going to handle this here. Give us an update on what the governor had to say. Yeah, I'm right outside the State Operation Command Center in near downtown Atlanta, and the state is mobilized. It's emergency resources. Uh, there's a state of emergency in effect uh, for parts of Georgia. And uh, the governor said, look, things are uh, looking okay now. He has not yet called for any evacuations or um, any other, you know, more urgent mes- uh, measures. But he has said that um, Georgia needs to stay alert. Um, there's going to be the potential for sweeping winds, for storm surges, for, um, for torrential downpours throughout many parts of Georgia. We're not sure the impact on the agricultural industry. We're not sure the impact on our road system because we're also expecting a surge of evacuees from Florida, which is gonna bear the brunt of the storm. Um, but he said that state officials are ready and he said that uh, they're continuing to watch, but there's, in his words, there's no need to panic in the state of Georgia right now. His uh, state emergency applies to all 159 counties. Um, and and But he we know that uh, also there has been a, a Tropical storm warning issued for Glynn and Camden counties as of now. And, of course, this is a constantly moving uh, target in terms of what's going to happen with the storm. Um, uh, uh, Glynn and McIntosh County schools are going to be closed on Thursday and Friday. Camden County schools have already closed starting uh, today. Um, so people, especially along the coast and in the barrier islands, are really the ones right now, Greg, who are uh, uh, anticipating what might happen before the rest of us uh, uh, feel the effects of the storm, right? Yes. Yeah, so one of the biggest concerns there, of course, is a storm surge that could be multiple feet and, um, and wreak havoc. But we still don't know, you know the storm's exact path. And uh, officials are being vigilant. They're watching. Um, there's a number of, of families and schools that are actually out this week for fall break. Um, so that is a good thing and a bad thing, right? Uh, there's, that means a lot of Georgians are, are not at their homes, but it also means some of those Georgians are also in Florida dealing with this, this impact. Um, and so there's going to be, um, there, there's going to be a lot of attention on this forecast right now, but right now it looks like at least that, that, uh, that the, the effects of parts of Georgia might not be as bad, certainly not as bad as Florida, 
um, but still very significant. Well, um, obviously, GPB News and all of our platforms, radio, our digital platforms, uh, will be following uh, uh, the storm as it progresses and giving you information, as will the AJC and all of their platforms. So uh, that all said, let's, uh, this is Political Rewind, and uh, whenever you have weather emergencies, there is usually a political uh, component that cannot be ignored. We're six weeks from an election. Governor Kemp certainly understands that if things should go south, if the state doesn't handle this in a, in a particularly effective way, this could uh, lead to grave consequences for him as he faces re-election. So let's talk about uh, the political implications of all this and bring in our uh, panel. Donna Lowry, as I said, is with us. Donna Lowry, for many years, uh, one of the most highly respected and popular TV yeah. reporters. She virtually owned the TV education beat. And, of course, Donna now is the host of Lawmakers on GPB TV. Hi, Donna. How are you? Great to be here, Bill. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for being with us. And Amy Steigerwald, professor of political science at Georgia State University and the associate chair of the political science department at Georgia State, uh, joins us as well. Hi, Amy. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you here. All right, uh, Greg, let me come back to you to start and bring everybody in on this conversation. Um, we know that in both 2011 and then in 2014, uh, there were two snow emergencies that hit Atlanta hard. The, the emergency in 2014 really paralyzed the entire metro area. There were people stuck on interstates for 10, 12 hours. They couldn't move at all. Uh, the state and the city uh, was really remiss in not uh, helping the situation, in anticipating what could happen. And all of this, despite the fact there were only a couple of inches of snow. And, and the thing about it is, Greg, um, you know, we had Nathan Deal as governor, Kasim Reed, mayor of the city of Atlanta, and they came under enormous criticism, and particularly Mayor Reed, because he seemed at first uh, somewhat oblivious to how desperate the situation was, and actually gave a couple of uh, uh, interviews where he seemed angry about the reaction to it. Not a good position for a, a mayor to take in a situation like that. Yeah, and remember, this was in the middle of the 2014 campaign. The governor deal at the time was running for re-election against Jason Carter, a state senator from Decatur. And uh, this became an enormous campaign issue. This really became my job for about a month, was writing about the aftermath, because we had this kind of near simultaneous exodus um, from the city of Atlanta and from the metro area of schools, of office workers, of government officials, all leaving, all flooding the roads at the same time with barely any snow really falling, any perceptible precipitation. And I was among those who was stuck in a 10-hour drive to get home to my newborn, my wife and my newborn baby at the time. Seems like a very long time ago. Um, but the fallout was immense because not only did Kasim Reed get a lot of flack, but so did Governor Deal at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. he, earlier that day, he was at a tourism event with folks dressed up like Scarlett O'Hara for Gone with the Wind. Um, it, it, it just mm -hmm. there was this perception that, that, that 
state officials were caught sleeping um, by this snow event. And in the years after it, um, A, they kind of cleaned house at GEMA and, and had brought a new director in. But B, they took a better safe than sorry approach and started closing down state offices and encouraging schools to slow down, to close down, uh, even with minor weather incidents or, or seemingly minor weather incidents, just in case they could kind of blow up into the next, what we called at the time, snowpocalypse. Yeah. Um, and one of the other reasons that the 2014 situation um, was particularly criticized was because we'd already experienced this, a similar in, uh, incident in 2011, where a, a, a small amount of snow had paralyzed metro Atlanta, and it felt as if only a few years later, city and state leaders simply hadn't learned many lessons from all this. So, uh, Amy, I think it's fair to say that a weather emergency does have political consequences, and there can be no question that Governor Kemp and his team understand that with the election coming up. Most decidedly. Um, so part of the issue that, of course, makes a long campaign season all that more unpredictable is you simply don't know what types of external events might occur that have to be responded that can kind of shake everything up. So we've already had, for example, the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, right, which obviously shook up and changed the status quo uh, with respect to the right to privacy and abortion. Now we have the possible impacts from the storm and how people on the ground are uh, viewing it and also viewing the response afterwards of what is going to happen. Um, it is unfortunately, right, highly likely that we're going to have, right, especially on the coastal areas, that they are going to be out of power, that there's going to be uh, trees down, things like that, right, even if it's not as bad as, right, some are predicting, there's still going to be those effects. And then the question becomes, well, how quickly do I get service back, right? How quickly do I see uh, the state and other actors showing up to help? And at the end of the day, right, right now, Governor Kemp is the one who is in charge of the state's response. And so that means that people may be using that when they go, if they go to the polls in November. So, um, Donna, of course, this can all accrue to Governor Kemp's benefit. Um, if everything is handled well, uh, it reminds voters uh, that he is the incumbent uh, and uh, that uh, they have put their trust in him in electing him back in 2018. And if he handles this emergency well, it probably does, in fact, uh, help him a bit moving toward Election Day. Yeah, well, nothing says leadership better than something like this, right? This is like says, OK, I'm in charge. I'm a leader. And I think it can either make or break you, depending on how well you handle a situation like this. So so the incumbents have the um, benefit here because so Senator um, Warnock sent out a press release yesterday mm -hmm. urging Georgians to prepare for the hurricane and the whole bit in a way that the, their challengers can't because they're not the incumbents. And so I think the, the leadership will make make a difference here for um, both both the Kemp, of course, more so than Warnock. But the other thing with this is nothing makes everyone kind of um, everybody feel like they're in the same boat, so to speak, um, and, and, and uh, mm. then, then something like a weather emergency, right? Where um, all politics aside, we're focused on what's happening to us and who's taking care of it and uh, how quickly they're doing it and making me as an individual feel my, I, that I'm safe and my family is safe. So this, this whole leadership, that the fact that the governor 
got out early on this and let people know how he's doing with it and uh, what what the plans are. And that that Warnock is saying, hey, listen, I'm in a position here, too, as an incumbent um, uh, candidate here, and I'm in a position to make sure federal resources are brought to Georgia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Greg Bluestein, I don't think we can talk about weather emergencies in Georgia without revisiting one of the most popular and to many Georgians upsetting sketch ever on Saturday Night Live. In the aftermath of the 2014 (laughs) snow shutdown in Georgia, Seth Meyer, uh, as Weekend Update anchor, uh, brought in Taryn Killam, who at that point was a member of the cast of Saturday Night Live, and he came on as Buford Calloway, an Atlanta man who had been terrified by the snowstorm that he was trapped in. We'll just listen to a little of that. It was horrible! You couldn't imagine such a storm! Lord, I will never forget when I saw those first flakes of devil's dandruff. Sorry, devil's dandruff, you mean snow? I do, Sethery! It was something awful. It was only two inches. Well, this is the South, Sethery. We are not equipped to deal with snow. I have stared into the eyes of the polar vortex, Sethery, and I have faced down two entire inches of New Hampshire cocaine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Greg Bluestein, I'm a Chicagoan. I am used to 24, 25 inches of snow under the worst circumstances, so I sort of understand uh, where this sketch uh, is coming from. But just the point is being made that these weather emergencies are very important uh, to leaders of a city, to a state, right? And then and to the reputation, right? I mean, I still remember yeah. that sketch. I still refer to snow as New England clam powder, just like that sketch to mention, <laughs> yes. um, and the devil's dangerous. But yeah, that's just a reputational hit for Georgia, right? Um, uh, and you better believe that, that, that rival states' leaders, economic development leaders, are saying, hey, they can't even handle two inches of snow let alone, you know, your business. And so we will never know um, what sort of economic impact that had on our state. But we do know the political fallout, which was a shakeup in the Georgia Emergency Management Agency, um, a a new push to buy all sorts of new equipment. Um, You know, because a lot of local officials say, we don't need big snowplows if we're only going to use them once every four years. Uh, But there is a new new push to buy more road treating equipment to treat these roads earlier so that ice doesn't have the chance to, to, to form and thicken on these roads, because that was the big issue. It wasn't as much the snow. It was the ice. There were, there were cars and tractor trailers jackknifing and slipping and sliding all over the downtown connector and our main interstates. And there was, you know, the images that I'll never forget from that were of people, including friends of mine, who were sleeping in CVSs and convenience stores because they couldn't get home. They're running out of gas. And I ended up ditching my car. You know, I was only a mile from my house, um, but I didn't run out of gas, but I, you know, there was a standstill traffic and it was getting dark. And so I just walked the rest of the way home and I was fortunate that I could make it. But many, many other people um, ended up sleeping in their cars and and sleeping in grocery stores. Well, um, thank you all for reminding us of how weather emergencies can impact the entire uh, community of people and the impact they have on political leaders, Uh, obviously. We watch for Hurricane Ian and the storms that it may bring to Georgia and hope that uh, we do not suffer 
uh, greatly from this storm. So let's move on and talk more about election politics. Greg, I'm going to go back to you and start with you on this uh, as well. You were um, on a panel at the Texas Tribune Festival um, late last week over the weekend. Um, Texas Tribune, of course, is the kind of pride and joy of digital news publications. It's become an enormous success. Never was a newspaper. It started as a digital publication. And its power is such that it attracts leaders from all over the country. Uh, uh, Liz Cheney spoke this year at the festival. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was there, and and there were many others as well. But you were on a panel with reporters from, I think, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, Arizona, and, and you. And if I got one of those wrong, let me know. But here's what I wanted to ask you about. The first question the professor who moderated the panel asked, um, according to Kevin Riley, who told me about this, he asked each of you to defend why your state is the most important state in this year's midterm election. And I think it would be fascinating uh, for our listeners to hear what you said, whether you bought completely into uh, what he wanted you to talk about. I'd be interested in what you told the Texas Tribune audience. Yeah, and there was panelists from Ohio, Nevada, and Pennsylvania, and of course Georgia there. <clears throat> and I said, look, Georgia hands down is the premier battleground state in the nation. Now, honestly, we're probably close to Pennsylvania in that sense, but we have more electoral votes than, than Nevada does, and we're certainly um, a lot tighter of a political rate, state than Ohio is, which has tilted decisively to the Republicans, <laughs> with a few exceptions, over the last, I don't know, six, six eight years. Um, but Pennsylvania, you know, has a, has a bigger trove of electoral college votes, and, and it also has a very fascinating election <laughs> coming up in Senate and governor. Uh, but look, in Georgia, obviously, look, what we've talked about on the show so many times is that we're no longer a red state and we're not a blue state. We're a purple state. We are a very close kind of seesaw state. Um, even if Republicans end up winning statewide offices in November it's going to be a very close 2024 race, and 2026 race could go right back to Democrats, for all we know. Uh, and, and what we're seeing right now is, I think, the most fascinating part of the entire election, uh, really maybe one of the most fascinating stories in the nation, is this split-ticket trend with incumbents, regardless of, pa- of their party, in the leads in, in not just the Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll, but in pretty much every public poll we've seen shows that Governor Kemp has a small but solid lead of four, five, six points. And um, Senator Warnock is in a neck-and-neck race with Herschel Walker, and he's benefiting from at least some crossover voting from Republicans who can't, who, who at least right now are indicating they will not support Herschel Walker. Um, uh, Donna, we, we should point out that Governor Kemp has been uh, cautioning lately out on the campaign trail that Republicans had better not get too complacent just because uh, a, a raft of polls seem to show him with a small lead over Stacey Abrams. He acknowledges that the state is uh, the electorate is volatile and could go any way, and uh, and he's right to be concerned about that, Donna. Because if people think this race is over, they may not turn out to cast their vote for Brian Kemp. Right, and we certainly saw that the uh, Republicans did not vote in the numbers expected in the last election cycle. So there is a real worry there. Um, the, the other thing is, um, Walker obviously feels the same way. You know, his, his people are sending out messages that say that with the, the title line, we're losing. 
where there's nothing that has uh, right now that's really said that. But that came out a, a few days after the AJC poll, poll came out. Uh, so there, there is the, the feeling that okay, um, we 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 can't we 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 understand that when people see that we're ahead, that they may say, okay, they've got this, we'll just quit. Um, but uh, they, they can't be complacent about this at all because you, you just don't know until those final votes are counted uh, how people ha- have, um, have looked upon all of this. And the things that we just talked about that can happen right up until the election, like a storm, like diff- different things that can change everything. And uh, people who may have decide they're going to vote one way, change their minds once they get to the polls. You know, Amy, it seems self-evident to point out, as we all do when we talk about the election, that turnout will determine who wins this. Of course it will. I mean, but but there's more to it than just that. Um, In 2018, the Abrams campaign had a a powerful get-out-the-vote effort. They identified new voters uh, to be part of their coalition, got them to the polls, came within 50-plus thousand votes of actually winning the state. And now Republicans have got a big ground game as well. They're out there pushing hard to uh, attr- get make sure their voters will turn out. They've established several uh, 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 centers for minority voters where they're encouraging minority voters to vote Republican. So, yes, it's self-evident turnout matters, but it, in a state as purple as Georgia, it's crucial to get the right people out. Yes, right. So you not only want to turn people out, you want to get your people out. And another thing to sort of add to the comments that Craig made of sort of why uh, Georgia is sort of the centerpiece of this is that we also are really reflective of the changing demographics that are going on in the country here in Georgia, right? So we have had the largest increase in population of Black Americans coming in. Um, We've also had notable increases in Hispanic population, Asian American population, and all of that, right, really sort of shows the shift. The other thing about Georgia is that we are sort of geographically diverse as well, right? We have coastal, we have rural, we have exurban, we have suburban, we have cities, right, in ways that are really quite different. And all of that plays into what can be difficult about trying to figure out how to target uh, not only the voters that were with you the last time, but also those possible new voters, right? So one of the things that's really interesting is that a lot of times we talk about suburban voters and the sort of uh, maybe unconscious sort of recognition there is that what we're really talking about a lot of times when we talk about sort of suburban voters is white women, right? Sort of the quote unquote soccer moms. The suburbs are now much more demographically diverse than they've ever been. And so that's not an accurate reflection. Rural areas are much more demographically diverse than they've ever been. And so part of it is also trying to go, trying to figure out what are the correct messages for the people that are living in those areas. And then also, how do you convince someone to turn out? The biggest issue that happens, right, is everybody's going after new voters. But the problem is new voters haven't made voting a habit yet. It's still something which, to be perfectly blunt, is new and therefore possibly at the bottom of the list. So you have to convince them that it should be a priority, that they need to turn out. And that can be really difficult. So we saw a big upswing in voters turning out in 
2020. But the question is, will those voters turn out again? And what is it that will motivate them to now make it a habit rather than something that was kind of a one off? So, Greg, um, uh, Amy's comments really uh, set up what I wanted to ask you about. You you wrote a, a piece uh, uh, for today's paper uh, about uh, Kemp's visit to Alpharetta yesterday. And you point out that he's devoted most of his time to campaigning in rural Georgia, where he's got a rich trove of Republican votes. And now he moves into uh, Alpharetta, and he brings with him the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, who uh, won his election up there largely by keeping Donald Trump at arm's length, and two, by playing on the fears of Virginia parents that their schools were no longer reflecting uh, the values and interests that they wanted their children to be exposed to. So talk about the importance of, of Kemp in Alpharetta and of Youngkin being with him. Yeah, well, Governor Kemp in 2018, and he made no bones about it. He, he won with a strategy that, that focused on Donald Trump supporters who often skip these midterm elections. And he, he built what he called the Red Wall. Um, you know, there's a lot of attention on Stacey Abrams' um, uh, efforts to, to drive a, a surge in turnout of minority voters and, and other Democrats who often skip these midterms. Um, but more quietly, he was building this, this Operation Red Wall uh, really focused on rural areas. And Governor Kemp outperformed Donald Trump in many parts of rural Georgia. Um, so he won that, that narrow victory over Stacey Abrams. But even then, he and his aides acknowledged this strategy won't work in four more years because there's, they, they acknowledged that the rural areas were dwindling in population and that the suburbs and, and urban areas of, Atlanta, uh, of Georgia were not. They were growing and becoming more diverse and more important. And so now you're starting to see um, up until now, we haven't seen much of Kemp's uh, campaign stops in suburban areas. He's mostly still focused on rural areas, although he spent millions of dollars in TV ads in the metro Atlanta and other urban media markets. Um, but I think we're going to start seeing more of Governor Kemp uh, crisscrossing not just rural Georgia, but the exurbs and, and the suburban areas that he'll need to uh, kick off in order to, um, uh, to, to keep his lead over Stacey Abrams. He's not going to win. Uh, Cobb County or Gwinnett County, or certainly DeKalb County, unless there's a tidal wave of, of red support. But what he can do, just as Stacey Abrams is trying to appeal to rural voters to cut the Republican margins, he can cut Democratic margins in some of these counties. Because even if he shaves off a few points, he puts a Stacey Abrams victory out of reach if he can keep you know Democratic votes uh, to a minimum in, in Cobb County and in Gwinnett County, if, if, if Democrats will still win those counties, but if they keep them in the low to mid 50s, it becomes that much harder for Stacey Abrams to win. Um, Greg, let me ask you one more question um, before we have to take a break. And then after the break, I want to continue talking a little more about this because I think it's um, valuable for our listeners to hear about this visit to Alpharetta for a variety of reasons. But Greg, if we continue to see Kemp uh, focusing on campaigning in uh, metro communities, does that suggest that they know, based on their internal polling, that their vote in rural areas is locked in, that they're safe, that they don't have to worry as much about those voters? They can now turn to uh, voters who uh, could be on the fence in terms of who they're going to vote for? Yeah, they certainly feel comfortable about the, where they stand in rural Georgia. <clears throat> but they're trying to expand the electoral map. And because of their standing in the polls in the rural Georgia, they feel like they have the leeway. Um, to push 
for new gains in some of these areas. And if he wins, you know, that would be part of the, the package that he has a mandate, you know, that he has not just a, a narrow victory like he had in 2018, but he's going for a bigger win. All right. Um, we got to get to a break. But when we come back, uh, Donna, I want to talk about the implication with you, the former education reporter, of Glenn Youngkin coming in to campaign uh, with Kemp. And, and I want to do it because of Youngkin's focus throughout the campaign on getting giving parents more power in dealing with their children's schools, which is certainly an issue that Republicans on the ballot, including Brian Kemp, are uh, doing right now in Georgia. We'll get to that in a lot more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Amy Steigerwald, Donna Lowry, and Greg Bluestein join me for today's Political Rewind. All right, Donna, you're the former education reporter. We know that Glenn Youngkin uh, ran on, uh, you know, eliminating critical race theory from the schools, giving parents more power in determining what their students, their children were learning in the schools. This is certainly something that's important to Governor Kemp as well. The legislature passed uh, legislation that deals with uh, these issues. Uh, so talk a little bit about uh, the meaning of all that as this campaign continues to unfold. Right. So it was basically a, a playbook, right? After Glenn Youngkin, uh, there was a playbook across the, uh, across the country on, okay, he was successful. Let's see how we can make this work. And Georgia certainly picked that up during the legislative session. So a lot of focus on what the so-called culture issues in schools, divisive concepts. They passed a bill that's now law for that. Parental Bill of Rights, certainly a law on that. Obscene materials, all of those things that they decided to focus on during the legislative session that is now, that that schools are now dealing with. And that's been a struggle for some schools to, to deal with it. It's been a struggle in so many ways. And the big focus has been on teachers, the teachers who are having to implement these policies, the principals who are having to implement the policies. So it's led to teacher shortages, teacher shortages, people who are retiring early, people are frustrated about what they can and cannot say in the classroom. The other thing that they they didn't deal with were were, um, issues that are affecting classrooms based on the pandemic, behavioral issues. So you see an increase in fights in the classroom. You see an increase in the disrespect for teachers in the classroom. The kids just, some kids didn't learn because they were dealing with the um, pandemic issues and, and sitting in front of a computer screen and just kids just don't feel it anymore. They don't have that connection to their teachers that they had before. So there's that. So what, and then, and the other issue or is what we we're seeing now is the numbers are coming out about what happened to these kids in the classrooms academically during the uh, pandemic. So the national report card, the, the NAEP scores came out and said, 
they've lost two decades or more of, in, of learning in areas of math and reading and things like that. So right now you have, you know, you, you've had the um, legislature thinking, okay, so the legislature focused mostly on these culture war issues and not some of the crucial issues that really are the reason that kids are in schools. Um, and I, I don't want to let um, leave out the mental health issues that they, they tried to deal with, but are still really there, that they really needed to focus on. I, I believe they're realizing a little bit more than divisive concepts, which didn't exist in the schools, parental bill of rights, which parents already had the right to say things in schools and these obscene materials. So these are like distractions that it looks like right now that the uh, legislature may want to deal with a little bit more. We, you know, Speaker Rawlson just appointed a study committee that's gonna look at uh, um, literacy instruction and things like that. So I think we'll see that happen, but it, it's been um, it's been a distraction and it certainly came out of what happened with Glenn Youngkin, who um, Brian Kemp is, um, is, you know, very much wants to pattern himself after it, it appears. Amy? Yeah, and everything that Donna said is exactly right. And I think one of the other parts to sort of just add on to it is that on the one hand, there are sort of very real concerns about the students, not only in terms of learning loss, but also uh, their sort of social and emotional health. But also one of the issues that people have all of a sudden targeted is the idea of social and emotional learning somehow not being about helping children um, learn how to prioritize and how to handle things, but instead that that is some type of kind of indoctrination or something like that. And so there's this real tension that some of the things that we really need to focus on um, and that children very much need, um, especially because they are at school for most of the day, um, are also some of the things that were caught in sort of the, the culture war that Donna was talking about. And so it's really creating uh, these sort of tensions as schools try to figure out what they can navigate. And, um, you know, obviously I come at this from a sort of different perspective because I am a teacher um, and also obviously know a lot of teachers. And so there are these sort of increased concerns that teachers have to worry much more about um, how they are presenting in the classroom, even things that seem like they should not be under dispute. Um, so you see uh, school board meetings where teachers show up and they say, well, wait a second, are you saying a divisive concept? Like, am I not, to, am I not allowed to teach slavery, right? We've heard questions of, am I not allowed to teach the Holocaust? Uh, at one point there was actually a recording, I, it wasn't in Georgia, I forget now where it was, of um, a superintendent saying, well, you know, when it comes to the Holocaust, you probably should present both sides, to which point somebody's like, I'm sorry, like, what's the second side of like mass genocide? Like, what would you like me to say that it was good to target a group of people and kill them? Like, I'm not real sure how I'm supposed to teach that. And this is part of the problem is that we've sort of focused on that as opposed to ensuring uh, information and it becomes a bit of a distraction, but it also makes it really hard for the teachers on a day to day basis if they're more, and especially the school administration, if they're more worried about what's gonna get a complaint than about how do we ensure that students are learning what they need to learn, and also that they're able to get through the day without, as Donna said, the fight, the outburst, because they too have gone through a lot these past couple of years. 
So, Greg, um, you're more than welcome to weigh in on, on, on that part of the discussion. But, but I'd like to broaden it with you, if, if I might, also. We've talked a lot about, about Kemp uh, throughout this show today. And we haven't talked about Abrams and what's going on with her campaign. I, so I'd really love, in a very open-ended question to you, for you to give us a sense of what is happening right now with the Abrams campaign. What are they focusing on most? What do they believe are their paths to victory at this point? How are they fighting the incumbency issue that uh, Kemp has done an awfully good job of uh, putting forward to voters? I, I think it would be great for you to just give us your uh, insight since you cover that campaign as well as the Kemp campaign. You know, it's interesting because we're talking so much about educational issues. And in, in other campaigns um, for governor, education is the dominant issue. Um, but mm -hmm. in our polls and other polls, education is not the dominant issue. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that to, to many voters, the economy, jobs, and abortion <laughs> and guns and preserving voting rights. And our latest poll showed preserving voting rights um, were the top three or four issues to many voters. And what Stacey Abrams is doing is she continues to try to blend some of these issues together, right? She acknowledges the economy is the most pressing concern for, for, for a plurality of Georgia voters. Um, but she's trying to make the argument that the Governor Kemp's policies on anti-abortion and his pro-gun policies are affecting Georgia's bottom line by costing Georgia businesses. Um, and she still believes, and as do many, many Democrats, including several that I talked to that story about, um, the Republicans trying to compete in the suburbs. They believe these polls are not picking up the the fact that the electorate is going to grow. They feel like the electorate is going to grow in size uh, because of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, infuriating um, a lot of voters, particularly women voters, who are upset that their constitutional right to abortion has been threatened. Um, so uh, that is D.C. Abrams' core campaign strategy going into this final stretch. She's going to continue to talk about abortion restrictions and vow to uh, roll back some of those gun expansions and, and these anti-abortion policies, and at the same time say that that is threatening Georgia's bottom line. You know, um, Greg, I, don't want, I certainly don't ever want to put any of my panelists on the defensive, and certainly not you either. But um, that was one of the criticisms of the AJC poll, uh, uh, which showed uh, Abrams like eight points behind uh, Brian Kemp. And the reason that there was criticism, and of course it came from the Abrams camp and others, was that um, uh, the pollsters chose not, I think I've got this right, not to include, to screen out people who had not voted in the primary elections. And, and the concern some Democrats had with that is that there may be, as a result of the Dobbs decision, a huge surge of new voters who did skip the primaries but could very easily show up in the general election and be uh, uh, Democratic voters, yes? Yeah, and we just don't know what the size of the electorate is going to be. Usually, you know, we can estimate that uh, the electorate will be about 55% women. But if it's 58% women, if it's 57% women, that could be a dramatic change in an election that we all think, including the Governor Kemp's campaign, including Stacey Abrams' campaign, we all think these polls will, th this race will tighten. You know, our poll had Kemp up by eight points. Um, it, 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 he, most people acknowledge the Governor Kemp is up in polls, but, he, but mm -hmm. eight points is a pretty sizable. So it might be closer to four or five points. Either way, going into November, things start to tighten. 
And if you have a, you know, a, a larger than, than anticipated turnout among women, and that if women do decisively back Stacey Abrams, because right now we're seeing a pretty wide gender gap. We're seeing men overwhelmingly voting for, for Kemp. But we're seeing it closer among women. Uh, in some of these polls. So if women end up breaking decisively toward Stacey Abrams, then it's a, a whole new ball game for Democrats. Yeah, um, and, and I think that we should always say that the trends among multiple polls have been toward uh, Kemp with a lead of at least several points, if not more. And as we always say, Greg, and you know this better than anyone, uh, polls are a snapshot of a moment. They are not a, predic- a predictor of the outcome of the election, Greg. Exactly. Snapshot is the operative word here. And, you know, that snapshot changes. These Polaroids change as we get close to the election and as things happen, right? We have no idea what will happen in October. <laughs> so, so, so buckle up. All right. Let's take our final break of the show and come back with more on Political Rewind. It's Political Rewind Newsletter Day. Um, It comes out to uh, inboxes every Wednesday afternoon. If you're not getting it, we'd love for you to join us. You can do that by going to gpb.org slash newsletters. By the way, um, I've written a piece uh, today about the fact that as we get closer to elections, as Greg Bluestein certainly could attest, uh, journalists get more and more complaints that we are not being, quote, objective in how we talk about the candidates. And I argue in this piece that objective and journalism are two words that should never have come together. Our job is to provide context and analysis. And that often means um, we are saying good things about one side on one day, bad things about that side on another and vice versa. So subscribe to our newsletter. um, And I think you'll find all of what we have to say there pretty interesting. Amy Staggerwald, the New York Times uh, published a piece this morning. It's, they're not the first ones to report on this, uh, but they really focus closely on Georgia, pointing out that conservative activist groups have been deluging uh, uh, election offices in a number of states, including Georgia, with uh, challenges to voter registrations. Um, the Times reports that at least 65,000 uh, voter registrations have been challenged across eight counties in Georgia, and um, they've mostly been in urban areas, which tend to be Democratic voting uh, uh, areas of the state. Um, and among other things, most of these challenges fall flat. And what they do, uh, in fact, do is tie up election officials as they try to get set to prepare for the election, which is rapidly approaching. Amy? Yes, we are on the one hand, right? We do want our voter rolls to be correct. We certainly don't want fraudulent or illegal voting. The problem on the other side, though, is that all of the broad scale studies that have been done, and even those that focus on particular areas, the reality is there is incredibly minuscule (laughs) amounts of actual fraudulent or illegal voting. And so what you have in many ways is this very firm belief that it's happening. And if we just looked for it more, we would find it. The problem is, is that you can't 
how do you disprove that? Because when they then go and look for it and they don't find it, instead of being relieved and saying, great, it's not there, they say you didn't look enough or you're not willing to take this seriously and so we need to do it more. Um, there's also the problem that, in fact, a lot of these groups are using it not simply as a sort of broad scale uh, attacks, but also in a very uh, partisan way. So they are choosing to bring these challenges, uh, particularly in Georgia, in counties which are disproportionately Democratic and they are uh, Republican groups. And they're many times quite open about that, that they're trying to do that. And so you have this confluence of events. You also have the issue that most election workers are amazingly awesome, dedicated city, county, state employees who just want to do their job that are getting sort of pulled into this, right? They think democracy is important. They think voting is important. They think running the elections is important. But it's very hard to try to convince them to take jobs like this. So we've seen immense amounts of turnover, et cetera. It's very difficult right now to get poll workers because they're getting these attacks and being maligned about the fact that they're sort of not doing enough. And you have uh, a lot of entities who in many ways are run by staff by volunteers who are having to hold extra meetings to be able to handle this. And so it therefore means that preparations that also need to be done to get ready for the midterm, you have a, the problem is that the time is zero sum. So if you're spending time on 20,000 challenges, you don't have time to do all the other work that you need to be doing. And it's highly problematic, especially because at the end of the day, I'm not entirely sure how we convince someone who firmly believes that there is just mass uh, illegal voting, that if we look harder, we'll find it, that it actually doesn't exist. Uh, Greg, of course, this is all predicated on the big lie. This is all about Donald Trump challenging the results of the 2020 election, which has led us to this situation in which far too many people no longer trust that elections are accurate and honest. In 2021, the Times po points out, uh, True the Vote, a Texas organization, actually challenged more than 300,000 uh, Georgia registrations. It was all, They were all thrown out. But this is a pattern. We should also say, Greg, that it was in 2018 that one of the reasons Stacey Abrams said, yes, I acknowledge Brian Kemp is the next governor of Georgia, but I can't conceive an election because she believes that in many ways the, the uh, 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 throwing out of thousands of voter registrations prior to that election were partly responsible for why she lost. Yeah, she believes that he presided as secretary of state over systemic abuses of power and always called on him to resign um, his office um, rather than continue to oversee elections in, in his role. Um, but look, this is also an aftermath of Senate Bill 202, the election rewrite. Now, so much attention was given to very important parts of the bill that blocked volunteers from getting out water and food and, and lines and tighter windows for ballot registration and voter ID, uh, ballot signatures for absentee ballots and all the other um, issues that we've talked about so much, but this was another part of the leg legislation that paved the way to allow these groups easier access to challenge um, big batches of ballots. And yes, most these challenges have gone thrown out and, and likely will continue to get thrown out. But what it does is it continues to stress our election infrastructure. 
you know, the, 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 the staffers who work tirelessly to make sure that the wheels of our democracy run smoothly. And now they've got to deal with more and more of these frivolous challenges from these outside groups that are just looking to promote election fraud lies. Donna, you, you tracked uh, last year's legislative session very, very closely, um, rem- or, or, and, and the session before that as well, back when SB 2202 uh, was passed. Um, remind me, am I, cor- am I not correct that there's a provision in SB 202 which essentially gives anyone who wants to challenge the registration of a voter the, the right to do that, which also opens the floodgates, uh, presumably, for these challenges. You're right. Not only does it allow anyone to challenge, but they can do it over and over and over again. Mm. So they can do a challenge, and um, it's determined that it w- it's not valid, and they can challenge again. So they can keep finding other reasons. And so it really keeps the elections officials constantly caught up in dealing with these challenges and keeping them away from what they want to do on a regular basis. So that, that is the tough part of it. There's not a limit, no cap on the number of challenges that people can make to these, um, the, these various, the, to anything dealing with elections um, in this state. And I think that's problematic. Greg, one of the things that really is distressing about, about some of this, and again, I think Amy Steigerwald made a really fair point. We do want to make sure registrations are accurate. It is fair to look and be sure that people are giving accurate information. But the, what's happening now is a whole different order. It's partisan in, in, in its um, uh, purpose. But, but what's troubling about it is all of this paves the way for people to have significant doubts and campaign around, and I don't mean candidates, I mean people watching the election, to, to uh, make the case that the 2022 midterm results are fraudulent uh, if the wrong people win. And look, that's what's scary about this entire process is that it's undermining our faith and confidence in our most important elements of democracy, our voting system. And polls continue to show a significant number of voters, and particularly a significant number of Republican voters um, and Trump supporters who believe all this. And, uh, it's, and it's going to take years um, to restore that faith and confidence that, that, that the former president undermined by continuing to promote these conspiracy theories, these false conspiracy theories about what happened in his 2020 defeat. Greg Lustin gets the last word on today's political rewind. We're completely out of time, uh, but I'm awfully glad uh, that we uh, had this conversation today. Donna, Amy, thank you so much uh, for being with us as well. I want to take run a quick, quick moment for a point of personal privilege. Yesterday, Kevin Riley, the boss, the editor of the AJC, presented me with a copy of Mike Lukovich's new book, a collection of his cartoons. And we all know what a brilliant cartoonist he is. But it was personally autographed by Mike himself with a little picture of me at a microphone. And I have to tell you, it's one of the most special gifts I've ever gotten. And I'm very grateful to you, Kevin and Mike. Thank you so much for a wonderful, wonderful surprise. A gift. All right, that's it for us for today. We're back with more tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.